Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I'm Megan Francis here with a really important interview for our August Voices episode. I'm recording this on August 2nd, and at the time of this recording, so many of us still don't know exactly what school is going to look like in the fall. Many, many parents are finding out that school will be online only for at least the first few months of school. Other parents are feeling forced into choosing between virtual options, homeschooling, or in-person learning in a time where there are still a lot of questions around safety and community spread. And many, many moms have jobs that can't be done from home. Many moms can't or just don't want to cut back their working hours or leave the workforce entirely. And as so many of us learned the hard way last spring, even those of us who have the option to work from home have realized that trying to juggle that with distance learning is definitely not ideal. Daycare could become a really important solution for families, but concerns around safety, capacity, and cost are a big challenge. My guest today is Ann Halsell co-founder and CPO of Winnie.com, which is a service that matches working parents with childcare providers. She has a ton of insight about the childcare landscape right now, including why daycares have been able to stay open relatively safely during the pandemic and the conversation we should all be having around who bears the brunt of childcare demands and costs. Spoiler alert, moms, even though we are great at coming up with creative solutions to everything, we can't solve this societal problem one homeschool pod at a time. It's a big economic issue that's going to require everyone at every level to pull together. Anne and I had a really great conversation around women in the workforce, working families, daycare, and more. So I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Anne. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I am excited about this conversation because, um, you know, Sarah and I have been having a lot of, we've been doing a lot of content around school and daycare and work, um, work life decisions right now. But I think you're so uniquely positioned to really have your finger on the pulse of not, not only what's happening in your own family, but what's happening for families overall. So tell us a little bit about, um, your role at Winnie first, and then I want to really dive into like 
not only how you're seeing this happening around you, but how it's actually, how it's affecting your family. Yeah. So I'm the co-founder and head of product of Winnie.com, which is a directory of licensed daycares and preschools that parents can use to search for uh, childcare and early education programs. So it's the kind of thing where you go and enter your zip code and then you can filter by things like age and price and availability, um, see photos, read reviews. It's really like Yelp for childcare. Okay. Um, and uh, kind of unique to Winnie because we're really committed to safety. Every listing, we make an effort to connect it to the state licensing record. So you can easily verify the licensing status of that provider, see their inspection history, et cetera. And now in the pandemic, we're also kind of tracking like what are the health and safety measures that those providers are taking. Um, and we're the only childcare site that is doing that. I either of those things actually. Um, and a big part of kind of what I'm personally and professionally committed to is helping families of all kinds. And our, our tagline is daycare and preschool for everyone. Um, because we believe that every child should have access to quality childcare and early education and that every family and especially every mom should have all the information that they need to assess their options and make the right decision for their family, whatever that might be. So what, um, what are, what's changed over the last few, you know, four or five months since COVID became a reality, how has your role changed? What is the conversation sounding like? Um, kind of on a broad, a broad scale? I mean, we founded Winnie five years ago, my co-founder and I, and we're both moms. We both have three children. And what we felt so, the reason we felt so compelled to do that was that we saw this huge generational shift. And you can actually see it in the data. As of 2019, 71% of moms in the United States with kids under 18 were in the workforce, um, which is up like 40 points from 30 years ago. I mean, it's incredible growth in the workforce participation specifically of moms. And we we knew that was happening, right? We knew that women were having children a little later. They already had established careers. They had gone to college. They felt invested in their work and they wanted to either stay in the workforce to some degree, even while parenting their young children or return to the workforce after taking some time off to parent young children. and we saw like a big opportunity to uh, build some technology and some platform solutions that would really make that a whole lot easier than it was. It's kind of this like terrible mishmash of figuring out like, should I get a nanny? Should I get a right. sitter? What costs the, you know, the, the least to right. the most? Um, and then uh, pretty much everyone, whether or not you choose to participate in the workforce part-time, full-time or not at all. Um, at some point reaches their age, their child reaches the age that they want to consider some kind of preschool or pre-K program. Um, and as we know, preschool in the United States is not part of our public school system in most places. So uh, that is a thing that parents, for better or for worse, it probably shouldn't be this way, but parents have to kind of figure out and pay for on their own, even though it's just universally beneficial to kids. Like the outcomes are improved across the board when kids go to preschool, even just a few days a week, even just part-time. And so we definitely saw as we were, you know, building this company that more and more women in our generation 
had demand for some amount of childcare, even if they were uh, choosing to uh, be stay-at-home parents, that they just had more awareness of the benefits of early education. So the child gets to be three years old. Now it's a good time for them to join, you know, maybe some kind of small group environment, get the socialization, get uh, access to an early education program um, or kindergarten prep, that kind of thing. Uh, And so we really felt like pretty much everyone needs some of this. Like not everybody in the world needs full-time daycare. That's for sure the case. Um, But pretty much every parent is going to want to do some of that before their child goes to their full-time school. Um, And that certainly was the case. We were seeing there was just a lot of demand for that. People wanting to find information about the preschools in their area assessing them, really caring about the quality of them and knowing how they would enrich their child's lives. Um, And so that was really kind of our sweet spot was like kids under five, pre-K, preschool. And then for the people who did need full-time daycare, helping them find those options, whether they be small in-home providers or centers. Um, Then the pandemic hits. And so what has changed? Uh, Oddly enough, demand for childcare didn't shift as dramatically as you might have thought. And the fact of the matter is that like two out of three essential workers is a woman. Mm. So a lot of women had to continue to leave the home and do their job. And you can't substitute childcare with any other thing. It it serves (laughs) this quintessential part of the economy you cannot replace, right? Like you can't leave a three-year-old home alone. You can't plug them into a Zoom. Like they right. have to have their diapers changed. Someone has to do that in person. Right. Um, so there was this wave of shutdowns and and everyone that was not an essential worker was told to stay home. Um, and they, you know, generally pulled their kids out of childcare and the daycares were told to shut down for everyone except for, for these essential workers. Um, but essential workers make up a huge percentage of our population. There's a lot of people that still need in childcare. And so- what we ended up doing was that we kind of shifted really quickly what we were doing. We put up this like uh, emergency childcare portal for people who were essential workers and did need to keep leaving the home to do their jobs, um, connect with the daycares that were still open, were still servicing um, children of essential workers. And that kind of became this all of a sudden really, really important job that we had to play that never existed before. Like childcare was always uh, this kind of general consumer thing. It was something that a lot of parents thought about people made a variety of choices and then the pandemic hits. And now it's like, uh, this all of a sudden it's this very existential thing, right? Like people that are nursing need to go, need to have a safe place for their children and the school shut down. Right. Yeah. And my, uh, my daughter had just been born and she was born six weeks. Uh, she was born six weeks premature. Oh my goodness. So she was in the NICU for five weeks. Every day I went to the hospital and I spent all day every day talking to the nurses that worked in the NICU. And it was amazing listening to them. Just, just like this fear and angst about the fact that their, their kids couldn't go to school, mm. like trying to solve that problem. That was suddenly a very pressing issue for them. And I was as I was going through that experience and listening to them, I realized something really fundamental was happening that was kind of above and beyond the scope of what we originally thought we were doing, which is that now people may not 
be able to rely on their grade school for daytime care anymore. Mm -hmm. And what is that going to mean for all of these people? Yeah. Yeah, that that is huge. Um, You said you have three kids. You've got two olders. How old are they? They're five and seven. Okay, so not old enough to be left at home alone. So you're were you relying? Would you have been relying on school or some kind of childcare to help with them while you were visiting your baby in the NICU? And then if without that option, what happened? Just, I mean, it just feels like, and, and that's not, you're not an essential worker, but it's essential for you to be at the hospital. So like, how'd you make that work? I was, I was there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very wild experience because, you know, uh, she was, born. It was clearly an emergency situation. We were very surprised. Um, preterm labor is not ideal. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we spent our week there and, um, a friend was staying with our kids and, and bringing them to school every day. Wow. Okay. Um, and then we came home and then the shutdown started and actually the hospital then closed to visitors. So you just squeaked Um, through like under the wire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I got to go see the baby, but we couldn't actually both go at the same time anyway. Okay. Yeah. And the school closed. So the kids were now distance learning. So my husband, basically our routine was we were both on uh, parental leave, which was convenient. That was very convenient. Right. Um, that we both had paid leave at that time. Thank goodness. Um, because yeah, he had to spend six weeks full-time homeschooling the boys so that I could go to the hospital and be with the baby. And that's just what we did. Yeah. Wow. Megan, the end of the school year and kickoff to summer is a busy time of the year for families, but we can all eat stress-free and hit our wellness goals with ready-to-eat meals from our sponsor, Factor. Factor's delicious meals are never frozen and can be ready to eat in just two minutes. You can pick from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular choices like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Plus, they have more than 60 add-ons like breakfast, lunch, snacks, and beverages to keep you fueled all day long. So our team was comparing notes recently on our favorite Factor meals, and Katie loved the herb-crusted chicken with mashed cauliflower and toasted almond green beans. I loved that one, too. And get this, so did her little boy, Charlie. She heated it up for lunch one day, and Charlie, who's three, ate almost all of the green beans. I mean, that's quite an endorsement, right? I was going to say, what a parenting win. (laughs) And I get it, Charlie. Those green beans are crazy good. And if you really want to treat yourself, they even have meals with filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Listeners, head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour5050 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. We are welcoming back Vionic as a sponsor today. And Sarah, I will be honest, I was sorting through my warmer weather wardrobe the other day and it could seriously use a refresh, but you know what's good to go? My shoes. I've got a great selection to choose from thanks to the Vionic Vitals collection. And lately the pair I keep putting on again and again is the Uptown Loafer. I have two pairs, one in sand suede and the other in camel leather, but please don't make me pick a favorite. Oh, I won't. I'll let you keep both. That's so funny, Megan, because I was a little jealous of your Uptown loafers. I was the last one on our team to get a pair, but I just did. 
I also got mine in the sand suede, and I think I've worn them like four times this week. They really finish off a cute spring outfit. The Vionic Vitals collection has the best essential styles for everyday wear to get you ready for spring. And no matter what shoes you choose, you'll be on the go in comfort because every single pair of Vionic shoes delivers their trademark Viomotion technology for a difference you can feel. Bionic sandals, sneakers, and flats all offer incredible support, stability, and cushioning, and every pair comes with a 30-day risk-free trial, so it's easy to try them out. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at bionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's a one-time use only. Bionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Okay, and so when we left off, you were talking about kind of how things were playing out um, after your baby was born, pandemic is hitting, um, you're in the mm-hmm. hospital, your boys are now suddenly not in school anymore and are at home. So you're learning a ton while you're in the NICU talking to the NICU nurses. Then you've got your own kind of family. Um, you, you've got your family sort of thing happening that's different yep. um, because of the nature yep. of your work. How do you think, like, I just, that juxtaposition is so interesting to me. And I'm sure you've probably heard from tons of moms. And I know you've written some pieces and op-eds and things. Like, what do you think the landscape is looking like right now? What are we seeing a snapshot in the world of working parenting? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a few things happening. I mean, we, we all kind of got stuck doing distance learning um, at the end of last school year. And I think we all had a lot of optimism mm. that to some degree, our kids would be able to go back to school in the fall. I mean, I know I certainly did. Um, and, you know, when my maternity leave was up and my husband's paternity leave was up, we knew we would need childcare. Like that was just not something that was going to be optional for us. And usually you do need childcare over the summer mm. if you have school age kids. You know, so we had our, uh, former nanny come and help us out over the summer, but we arranged for that for the summer because we thought school was coming back in the fall. Right. And I think from what I've seen, I've heard similar things from a lot of people I've talked to, which is like they figured something out for the end of last year. They figured something out for the summer. Maybe they took a little bit of leave under the family first uh, coronavirus response act. Uh, Bill, you actually do get 12 weeks of paid leave. Um, It's kind of a new family medical leave reason if your children can't be in their childcare or school program. Um, So this is something parents have kind of been able to do. They could take family medical leave. They could take a leave of absence from work and kind of do temporary things, patches on the solution. or get a grandparent to help out or get a friend Mm. to help out or something. We all had these like patchwork temporary (laughs) solutions to get us through the summer, or we're just working from home with our kids and they're like doing zoom classes and things like that, because that's what we could entertain them with. Um, But now it's just starting to really sink in. And I think this, this is the reason that you've seen so much about it in the news lately. And so many people are talking about it it's really sinking in that we aren't going back to school in the fall and we shouldn't go back to school in the fall, Um, that that would probably be devastating if we did that. And this is just, the situation is not under control enough for that to be safe. You know, it's interesting. We don't know when it's going to be. Yeah. And I think it's (laughs) interesting because like it, um, 
depending where you are, it, it feels like this fantasy that some of us are living in. <laughs> and for where we yeah. are in Michigan, like school doesn't even open for more than a month, but they're still talking about it as though it's going to begin in person. And I'm just sitting back going like, I don't see it guys. And I think maybe they just don't want to come out and say it's not going to happen yet, but it's, you can, it's almost like you can see the phases of parents who have to face reality staggered across the country, depending on what their individual districts are doing or when they start. And it's like painful to be part of. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, the, the, the liminal state that we've been in all summer, I think is one big piece of just kind of the mental anguish of this situation. It's just not knowing what's going to happen and being able to just like mentally prepare for it. And I think I understand why the districts maybe are stalling a little bit and trying to give it a little bit more time. And I think we're all kind of hoping like maybe the cases will start dropping or, you know, maybe we'll kind of get over the hump of the wave or, mm. or whatever. I mean, you, you kind of hear lots of things in the media, but at the end of the day, you know, these are, families that are trying to figure out their livelihoods, like how they're going to care for and educate their children. And so many people still just don't actually know yeah, for sure what their life is going to look like. I know my school at this point in time cannot open and won't open and will be distance learning only, mm. but I don't know what distance learning is going to look like. Yeah. That's yeah. the other piece of it. Like I know what it looked like in the fall when it was kind of an emergency or in the spring rather when it was kind of an emergency situation, but I don't yet know, are they going to have to be at on zoom at a specific yeah. time? How and will there, will there be enough in internet different classes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, so what is my work day going to look like? I actually don't know that. So, so much yeah. of it is just managing this uncertainty. Like how can you even plan right when you don't yet know what you're going to be expected to do? Yeah, we um, Sarah and I just did an episode a couple weeks ago where we talked about um, that the difficulty of not knowing, which makes for me, and our district is the same. They're like, well, it'll be virtual, but it'll look different from the spring. But that's all we know for sure. And then right. they're still saying there could be um, an in-person. There still could be in-person. But I'm almost, I'm almost hesitant to even pin any hopes on that, even if they start on day one in person. I just feel like within a couple of weeks we'll be shut down again. And I'd almost rather not even, I'd almost rather not even have that in my head as an option. Like I'm just like eliminating that as a possibility at this point. And, and that's hard too. Cause you're like, well, I mean, technically they're saying maybe we could do it, but at the same time, if we start and then change again, that's like even more disruptive. Um, and if you didn't then find childcare for your kids, then maybe there's going to be a run on it. Like, then everyone's yep. going to need it all at the same time, which is also a scary <laughs> reality to face. Yeah. Um, so we've heard a lot from moms and because the show is the mom hour, we our listeners are mostly moms. So I'm sure that's not surprising, but specifically we've heard from moms where the mom is making the choice to reduce her hours or stay home or make a career shift, um, or like leave the workforce entirely. And obviously we're huge supporters of individual those individual choices, but part like part, we're also a little worried that this is going to have a negative effect on women in career, because I think it's just assumed that women are usually the first ones, even if it's not to leave the workforce, we still tend to be the first ones who pick up the slack at home, whether it's us, um, 
you know, run being the one kind of shuffling the kid out of the room so dad can do his Zoom oh, yeah. call or whatever it is. So talk about that. I know that's a that's been a big drum that you've been beating too, is how these inequities are now there's like a big spotlight being shown on them. Um, what concerns do you have? What are you hearing? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously this has always been the case that moms are primary parents. Um overwhelmingly. The school will call you first. Mm. The kids will go to you first. People will assume it's your problem. Your husband will assume it's your problem. Um, women are overwhelmingly responsible for all of these things, even the ones that work full time outside the home. And the what the pandemic, I think, has done for us is just made that inequity even more stark and mm. obvious. Because you have like one of two things happening. You have the moms who are, I think, completely understandably looking at the situation and going, this does not make sense. Like I should just dial back my hours or I should just stay home because who even knows what's going to happen? And so one of us really does need to be available full time just to handle whatever comes our way in the fall. Like that makes perfect sense to me. And then you have the moms who are working from home and their husband may also be working from home. And what we have seen uh, is that they, you know, based on some studies of these households where both parents are working from home, where both parents theoretically are equally exposed to childcare and housework demands, moms were scaling back their work hours by about two hours per week. But the father's work hours did not scale back at all. Mm. So they were working equally as many hours from home as they were from the office. But women were working less from home than they were in the office. Mm. Um, no good reason for that at all. Both parents are working from home. Both right. parents are there. They have to deal with the kids. They have to feed them and clean up. Um, but the fact of the matter is, mom is the primary parent. The kids go to her. They interrupt her Zoom call. Dad is in the office with the door locked. Yeah. And I think there's like a a thing that is, I think, social. I don't think it even like the progressivism in our actual labor force, which indicates that 40 percent of families have a woman at the head, primary or equal or sole earners for that household. Nearly half of the families in the United States, the woman actually makes more or as much as her husband. Um, so you can't even say like, well, women typically make less. So it makes sense that they drop out of the workforce. But that's not true that's for not, so many families. I mean, it's still, it's still kind of the, the, I don't know, stereotype, I think that people kind of go to in their heads, but you're right. It's not true. Um, yeah. And, and it's what I think is, a, well, and what's interesting too, is if you're bought, if you have a male boss and the male boss is used to his wife or partner being the one who jumps in and takes care of the kids then he's not really going to understand. Like, you know what I mean? Then his oh, experience yeah. of working from For home sure. is so different that like, there's sure. just not equal either. So even working at home doesn't equalize things. Yep. Yeah. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely the case. And the, uh, <laughs> I think that the, the case, like, despite the fact that our economy has seen progressivism at work and women being more in the workforce and being more primary earners there that that progressivism isn't reflected in the hearts of everyday people Mm. and you can see this in a 
survey just from a few years ago, 77% of Americans say that women face a lot of pressure to be an involved parent. Like that's Mm. one of the main pressures on women is to be an involved parent and less than half say the same of men. And it's just this social expectation we put on ourselves and others put on us and our husbands put on us and our bosses put on us that we're going to put our kids first because we should, because that's what women do. Yeah. Yeah. And it just really goes, goes back to that. And like, that's so ingrained in all of us that you have to be working so hard every single day to really be questioning. Like even I have to do this and I earn exactly the same amount of money as my husband is like, Sometimes I'll be like, oh, but his job is so important. And I have to like kind of rewind myself. Right. And like, no, <laughs> no, right. no, no, like my job's important too. And yeah. like, he can change the diaper. So, you know, that, that internal dialogue is there and it's there for all of us. And it takes a lot of questioning and unpacking and just constantly challenging that assumption to even reach equality to get yeah. from like most people thinking that the kids are your problem to get from that 77% to the 50%. Well, and sometimes I think it's also a little bit of like we do in the moment what seems like easiest in the moment because we're so overwhelmed or exhausted or whatever. And I'm thinking back to like when my kids were really little and I was always working from home, but often um, my now ex-husband would be in the house and so one of my kids would come into my room where I worked and say, mom, I'm hungry or I, you know, I want a glass of milk. And I'd say, well, where's dad? Oh, he's in the kitchen. It's like, he's literally standing next to the fridge Right. they come to yeah. me and ask me. And I just remember thinking sometimes I would, it's this in the moment, um, conflict between thinking this is just junk. I need to retrain my kids that they need to go to him when it makes sense. I need to retrain him that he should step in. But right now I just need to get this article done on deadline and I'm just going to take mm-hmm. care of it because it's faster. And I think that that is something it's easy to fall into that trap in so many places of, in our lives. Um, and this is definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Just another example of that, uh, that mental labor, the emotional yes. labor that falls on women is not even just that we always have to do the thing. But then it also falls on us to change that dynamic in the family and in society and in the workplace. Yeah. And, um, and not everybody has this choice. And that's the other thing that we've been hearing. Like there's a lot of conversation Mm -hmm. around uh, choices right now, but a lot of working moms just have to go to work. They either have the kind of job that can't be done, um, from home or Mm -hmm. they are maybe a single mom or their family really relies on their entire income and, um, not working is not an option. So no matter what childcare is a huge issue, um, and needs to be prioritized. And of course, that is going to be a huge issue in the next however long this goes on. We are welcoming back Ritual as a sponsor today. Megan, we both try to make healthy choices, but you know, sometimes it's tricky to sort through fact and fiction when it comes to supplements and vitamins to figure out just what they're doing for us. That's why I'm glad Ritual keeps studying their products and sharing the results, especially as it relates to women, since women are the focus of all Ritual's products, including the Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin. And the results are super reassuring. Just as an example, Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin, and it was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. 
Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin is made with high quality and traceable key nutrients in clean bioavailable forms with nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Plus, they are leading the industry when it comes to sustainability. They use lower carbon packaging and prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients. That kind of thoughtfulness really matters to me. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash the mom hour. Start Ritual or add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash the mom hour for 25% off. Sarah, I know music education is important to a lot of parents, but we also know parents and caregivers already have a lot on their plate. Our sponsor, Carnegie Hall Kids, is here to help. Their online resources can help facilitate music education and learning as a family for free. Yeah, and we've talked about Carnegie Hall Kids in the past and all of their great educational games, quizzes, and videos for kids and families. And now kids can check out their brand new Sights You Can Hear quiz, which plays a piece of music and then has you guess what visual image inspired it. Our listeners may have heard the name Carnegie Hall because of their live performances, but they might not know about all the educational resources they also have for kids and families on their website. And the best part is everything on the Carnegie Hall Kids website is completely free. Listeners, start the musical journey early and go to kids.carnegiehall.org to check out fun, child-friendly games and quizzes. That's kids.carnegiehall.org. Okay, Anne, so let's talk about daycare because a big part of what you do at Winnie is, I mean, pretty much your, your, your reason for existing is connecting parents with mm-hmm. childcare. And right now that looks so different. Um, daycares have been reopened in most parts of the country to non-essential workers for a while but you and I talked mm-hmm. um, a little while ago about the fact that they're not being utilized at capacity, which surprised me. I actually thought that they would be like over full and that's apparently not the case. We can talk about that. But also safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's maybe a concern for parents. And I think what I learned about safety protocols and daycares was rather reassuring. So let's first talk about the the daycare landscape in general right now. How is it being utilized um, or how is it not being utilized what do you think the reasons might be for the underutilization and, and just like what you're hearing from parents trying to find daycare or daycare providers who are trying to find, you know, customers right now? Yeah. So uh, like you said, that's, that's absolutely correct. That daycares have been reopened uh, in most places actually since June and able to take families uh, of with children and they're not essential workers. Um, the, even during the shutdowns, a lot of them were still open, like I mentioned, to take care of those essential workers' children. Um, and so one thing that is quite beneficial about that is that they've had quite a bit of time mm. to prepare their new operating protocols for the pandemic. Okay. So they, uh, in some ways, have some advantages uh Childcare in the United States is heavily regulated. It's regulated no matter what kind of facility it is. If it's a home, that home is inspected. The uh, caregiver is background checked and fingerprinted and vaccinated. Um, If it's a center, that facility has very specific requirements. There are very uh, small ratios of uh, caregivers to children, and that ratio depends on the age. there's a lot of compliance requirements uh, for childcare providers that already existed pre-pandemic, um, including hygiene procedures. 
because of course, regular, you know, illness can spread in daycares. Um, some of which can be quite dangerous to children like the flu. So they already had some things going for them where they were already expected to maintain a certain standard of cleaning protocol. Um, but the other thing that's really notable about daycare that makes it different from school, and this is why I think a lot of people get very confused that they think, why can a daycare be open but a school can't? Daycares are designed for small groups and it has to do with those very, very low ratios that are required by law to maintain. So, uh, you know, infants, it's one to three in most places, mm. you know, toddlers, one to four, preschoolers, one to six, like they're going to have smaller groups already and centers, even though they may be large and have many children on them, they're broken into rooms of smaller groups of children. So they have this kind of, uh, beneficial arrangement already for the world of the pandemic where kids are already in smaller groups. They're already doing some set of kind of cleaning protocols just for their basic compliance. And they were mostly operating during the shutdowns because they were providing an essential service themselves. And in order to do that safely, they had to do things like secure PPE for the staff and get them masks and face shields and get the hand sanitizer and get the bleach um, and really like step up their game and temp check all the kids and change the drop-off procedures. So all the things that like hypothetically a grade school now could be doing to be safer, breaking kids into smaller groups and temp checking and having everybody wear masks and blah, 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 like daycares already have been doing it all summer. Um, and I find that uh, now what I see from working with all these different providers is that they've gotten to a point where I think they now have a pretty good protocol. Mm. And so the, they're, they are resuming to normal operations, which means that they have the ability to care for children. Um, but what is the case for them now is that they are now significantly under enrolled okay. and it makes a lot of sense why they would be because number one during the shutdown they did have to send the the families that were not essential workers home mm -hmm. um so those people either secured other forms of child care or you know the mom drops out of the workforce right. reduced her hours like that kind of already happened um or uh sadly you know people just lost their jobs or they right. were furloughed uh, they can no longer afford childcare. It doesn't make sense for them to use it. So they did not return to their programs. Um, and finally, some parents are just choosing to keep their kids home um, because of concern for safety. And they would rather not put their children into a group care environment. So daycares across the country are open. They have their protocols in place. That's all kind of being organized at the state level through the regulatory bodies that already oversaw the compliance of child care providers have given them recommendations for cleaning. Um, and some states have even given them stipends for things like PPE and cleaning supplies. Um, they're back, they're open for business and they don't have enough families. Mm. Um, and this problem is so dire actually that like uh, there's multiple bills in Congress right now. It's a bit basically bail out the child care industry. Um, to the tune of like 20 to $50 billion Wow! because their enrollment is so low that it's unsustainable for them. And they are starting to close 
permanently. Mm. Some of the larger daycare centers maybe were able to get, uh, you know, some of the PPP funding to kind of keep things going, um, but that's now running out. And if they're not able to get their enrollment up to a sustainable point, and these are, you know, small margin businesses, they, they really can't operate profitably with only right. 30% enrollment. Um, then they're looking at having to close their doors permanently. And so that's actually quite a significant problem for the industry right now. Um, so I think a lot of parents kind of have, uh, like if, if they are in a situation where they're like, okay, I do need childcare, what are my options? I think it is the case that a lot of people either don't know the daycares are open or don't understand that there actually is a ton of availability right now. I think the yeah. common sense thing you might think is like, oh my gosh, they're probably full. Yeah. They're charging exorbitant rates uh, because there's so many people lined up to get childcare right now. At least yeah. in this moment, that is not the case. And I think the safety thing probably is big too. Like I think that the fact mm -hmm. and that I think you shared that there really haven't been significant outbreaks in daycare um, situations would be surprising because you would assume if schools can't, like you said, if schools can't open, how come daycares can safely open? And, and the way you laid out the differences is really, um, that's just, it's striking. They are very different environments. Yeah. 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 We, uh, we did this uh, big survey actually. So there's very little data. Another very frustrating thing is like, there's been very little formal study of the childcare environments that have remained open, even though they've been open for months. You would think that this would probably be a good thing for us to be looking at to understand like how risky is opening a school. Um, but there is very little formal study on childcare settings. Um, but we did an informal survey, so crowdsourced data, where we asked people to self-report the um, uh, the rates of infections and confirmed cases in either staff or students in their childcare facilities. Mm -hmm. um, we partnered with uh, Dr. Emily Osser, who's been doing just the most amazing work. Her site, uh, COVID Explained, has everything that you could want to know about like the current state of our research understanding from the perspective of a parent. Um, she's the author of uh, Crib Sheet and Expecting Better, which are both like amazing evidence-based parenting books. Um, she really breaks it down. And so we partnered up with her to just collect some data from over a thousand daycare providers that were open during the pandemic. And kind of some of the key takeaways from that data, uh, you can find it on winnie.com slash blog, by the way, if you want to dig into it. But some of the key takeaways that we found is that the reported case rate for children in daycare was actually lower than the overall confirmed case rate in children and mm -hmm. just the general U.S. population. Um, and the reported case rate in adult daycare staff was also lower. So this is not a scientific study. It's crowdsourced and self-reported, but this is pretty encouraging. Um, I think that one of the things that is really important for people to remember is that the risk in any business is higher when community spread is higher in your area. Okay. So the more that there is community spread in your area, the greater the risk someone will bring it into the daycare. However, it's usually the adults. And that's mm. the kind of key here. So it's usually the adults. And in a 
daycare setting, like let's say a small home daycare, it's a single sole proprietor. There's one caregiver and that caregiver works out of their home and hypothetically doesn't even have to ever leave it. Um, so that's a very low risk scenario, right? Mm. There aren't a ton of adults coming and going. If your daycare has said like drop off at the curb, you know, parents aren't allowed in the building, that safety measure can actually make the difference between having, you know, spread in the daycare and not because it's really the adults uh, that are bringing it in. And uh, that is kind of a consequence of the just general community spread among adults in that area. Well, um, for the most part, I think people have been keeping their kids besides childcare home, you know, so mom right. and I mean, regardless of how this disease is transmitted, um, it's also just seems like kids have been more sheltered in general. Mine didn't go in a store for so long. I think they forgot how stores work. So, you know, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so, okay. So, so daycare is looking to be a pretty safe option. It's available, but it's expensive. And if parents have school-aged kids, um, they probably weren't like, they weren't planning on it. That is you wait, you wait for the day that your kids turn five and can go to kindergarten and you don't, and you get to get rid of childcare as a line item on your you know, family's budget. So I think it's really interesting that you've got, um, you, you mentioned the bailout bills that are in, mm-hmm. in Congress for, um, you know, the childcare industry, then you've got like PPP and then you've got, um, FMLA or FMLA and you've got like all these different things, but what is, or doesn't seem to be is like, a uniform way to bring them all together to solve this problem. And I'm sure that's very frustrating um, for somebody who is like, you know, on the, on the forefront of trying to get this problem solved. So what are you hearing about the cost of childcare and how that's affecting this and how people are getting around that? Are there any solutions on the horizon? And let's dig into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, it is hard. I mean, <laughs> in the United States, obviously, we don't have subsidized childcare like you do in a bunch of other places. It's not fully subsidized. Um, but it is actually somewhat significantly subsidized. So only 60% of families that use childcare are private payers. Um, so 40% are getting some assistance. Their childcare is either partially paid for or free. Um, so there, there is already a framework in place to help the lower income families get access to childcare and get access to early education uh, when they might not otherwise be able to afford to pay the market rate for it. Um, I feel like now would be a really great time (laughs) for our local and federal government to be looking at ways to increase those subsidies that are already kind of in play, right? Yeah. Like the, the the network of regulated caregivers exists. They have availability right now. They could take more children. They need to take more children to keep their businesses going. And so we're talking about bailing them out, but like, could we instead take some money and expand our childcare subsidies right. so that now it's not just like low-income families that qualify them, but maybe expand them to the middle-income families who still like as much as low-income families maybe don't have as much of a choice as you might think but there are many many dual-income families in the middle-income range where you do really still need both parents income to pay your mortgage right 
And it isn't financially feasible for them to have one parent completely drop out of the workforce and care for young children. But they don't qualify, especially if you're dual income, you know, you're, you're just above the band qualifying for a lot of these subsidies. So it really does seem to me like expanding the subsidies and raising the, uh, you know, that income bar to include the middle income families and then having anyone that really does need daytime childcare giving them the option to send, say, their school-aged children to a local daycare that has set aside a room for them to do their distance learning would kind of solve both problems, right? Mm. It, it would help those working families that maybe don't have that choice. I mean, obviously, in a pandemic, it's better if everyone stays home, but that isn't feasible for a lot of people. Um, their kids need to go somewhere because they work in a hospital. Right. And uh, it would help them get the daytime care that they need and their kids would have the support and their distance learning. And then the daycares would have butts and seats that they need to stay open. Right. Um, And this is something I have, I feel like I'm screaming into the void when I'm like on Twitter going on about this because it's just so much not in the conversation at all. I feel like all of the uh, attacks Tension on this issue continues to be moms are self-organizing homeschooling pods private teachers and moms are doing that and moms are doing this and it's like I mean can we talk about like maybe two other things would be great if we could talk about one of these other two things right number one is what could local and federal governments be doing differently to help these parents who are in this situation which is 30 million people in the U.S. workforce like, could could the federal and local governments be doing something here? And could we talk about that? And number two, like, what are dads doing? Mm. Like, could could dads be doing something different <laughs> right now that would, like, maybe help a little bit with the situation that's not all about, like, how are moms solving this problem? Like, it's only our problem. Um, it is absolutely not only our problem. It's a yeah. social problem. And it's one that's going to have real serious implications for our economy if we don't fix it. Yeah, it's so interesting how the economy is, I mean, it is, it functions based on the assumption that most adults work, you know, and that both parents work. And then it's like, now that it's not possible for both parents to work, well, moms, I guess, figure it out. You know, now it's not possible yeah. for them to do it the way it used to be. Something has to, and it's still possible yeah. for them to work, but something has to change. And yep. um, it can't be on, like the burden cannot be on the moms to fix this problem. Right. Um, and you're right that, yep. that if our economy, you know, goes into a free fall that lasts and lasts because moms aren't at work, this is, this is not something that, like when all these decisions are being made in silos, that doesn't help. You know, if you're bailing out one industry, but you're not helping the parents, that doesn't help. And you're right that expanding a program, I'm thinking of um, here in Michigan, our um, our school lunch, because that went away when, you know, the pandemic hit, like kids weren't in school, so there was no school right. lunch. They um, expanded food stamps and kids or parents just got like food stamps show up in the mail because they just said, well, we're going to expand, expand, uh, expand the food stamp program to cover the lunches the kids would have had. 
So you didn't have to apply for yeah. it. It just showed up at your door. And I'm thinking, well, of course, because the system was already there. The kids were already like they were it's easy to get the parents because they have access to the kids addresses. And like it's literally just a card that's preloaded with money that you could use at the at the grocery store. And I think you're right that just changing that threshold, like why reinvent the wheel? It already exists. Right. Like subsidies exist. It already exists. Yeah. And, <sighs> and the like network of licensed daycares and preschools in this country are there's 500,000 of them in this, in the United States. They're already regulated. They're mm. already background checked and they're set up to take subsidies and, and they're quality controlled and they're safety controlled. And the thing that stresses me out a lot about the fact that now people are getting very creative about how they're going to care for their children or educate them is that a lot of what they're doing is spinning up stuff that looks to me like unregulated daycare. Mm. Yeah. And I do worry a bit about that because I mean, a, a, a network of loosely organized co-ops and, you know, unregulated private tutors and caregivers, like if we end up in that situation, let's say that the state of Michigan comes up with a hundred million dollars to put mm-hmm. into supporting working parents and paying for childcare, they can't put that money to work in a network of unregulated, loosely formed co-ops and right. private teachers. They can put that money into their licensed daycares, right? Um, because they're the, the system of accountability is already there for that right. network of providers, and that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, obviously I'm facing this problem. I have to get creative too. And I don't know what I'm going to do in the fall. It's a huge question for me. Um, but I do think that like, if ever there was a time for everyone to start screaming their heads off about expanding childcare subsidies, like it is now. Yeah. makes a lot of sense. Do you have suggestions for where to start? Um, so that we're not just screaming, <laughs> screaming inside our hearts, I think was screaming what... into the void, <laughs> yeah, screaming into the void. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that in China, they opened uh, amusement parks back up, but they asked people on roller coasters to scream inside their hearts instead of scream screaming out their hearts. <laughs> so yeah, we're all doing that a little bit right now, right? We're um... all doing that every day. <laughs> yes. That's a whole mood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I. I think one of the bigger challenges and the reason it is so difficult to organize around childcare issues in general uh, is that childcare is very much a state by state thing Mm. and and very similar to like how our public school system is. Um, And so uh, a lot of things roll up at the state level and then many things roll up at the city and county level. So really this is about like action in your local government. I think that what would be a really good place to start is as parents are finding out what's going on in their districts, as they're finding out, you know, it's going to be online learning or partially online learning, um, showing up at those town halls, Mm. you know, going to the board of directors, talking to the superintendent, Sending petitions to their office, sending petitions to your, you know, state's department of education and ask them, okay, great. So schools are closed. I get it. Um, we're going to be online learning. Uh, what's your solution for childcare? Yeah. Like, 
what are we, what are the working parents going to do? Can we talk about that? Um, because I think that this is uh, a question that they should be fielding, not that they are necessarily responsible for it because their job is to provide education, not child care. Um, but I think that the putting that problem back to them kind of starts it up the chain mm. to where it it gets to the point in the local government where the uh, departments of education, the departments of social services meets, which is generally where you will kind of see the meeting of the minds of child care and education um, and get the conversation going at the local level, even hyper-local, even your own district. Uh, San Francisco, uh, where I live, our public school district actually did organize a child care solution for kind of the lowest income, most at risk students. That was somewhat brilliant. They took the libraries and rec centers, which are closed, obviously. They have a bunch of real estate all over the city. Um, they took those facilities, converted them into distance learning centers, and then worked with their after school care providers. So these are the aftercare providers who are also licensed um, daycare providers uh, to provide full day care supervision, basically, for kids who are distance learning. And then they'll be in very small groups kind of spread throughout the city and the rec center libraries. And they'll be provided with the computer and internet connection to do their distance learning. That program is was just set up made completely free and the families that need that because they're the lowest income or they're homeless, uh, they can utilize that program. So their children will have a safe place to go during the day. Wow. Didn't have to apply for anything. Didn't right. have to get a voucher. It's just like, it's just free. It's there. And the, the district provides that service by partnering with a local licensed daycare providers that they already work with the after school care providers. Um, that program is not available to middle income families, notably, um, because there probably wasn't enough money for that. Right. But they put that together to service the kids that really needed it because they knew that they had to, right. Mm -hmm. That not solving that problem would cause harm to the children in the city that couldn't go to school. And so I think that it is reasonable to kind of stand up and go to your district, go to your superintendent, go to the board of supervisors, go to the town halls and ask, what are you doing about child care? Yeah. Because even if you're, I mean, just to your point before, if it's always, if the solution is always moms jump in and fix everything with our creative hacking, yep. then yep. <laughs> the people who don't have the time to speak for themselves, like there's, there's people out there who probably would love to show up for, um, a city council meeting or something and just they don't have the wherewithal the time whatever so you're not only speaking up for yourself even if you don't even if you think you can handle it you know it's it's like for right. all of us we're all pitching in where we can and that i think we do need to have that attitude um that we're just not we're yeah. not going to solve this for you guys government <laughs> that's not our job yeah 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 i mean the city the county the district the state they all have budgets mm -hmm. that can be used to solve problems. And I think that 
if enough people stand up and ask, okay, how are you going to solve this problem? They can find some money mm-hmm. and maybe it's not going to go to the middle income families. I think without additional capital um, and, you know, kind of a su- significant commitment at the federal level to give states more money to expand childcare subsidies, I don't anticipate that that something magical will happen where middle income families will get free childcare. Um, but it could turn some hearts around to get a system in place that that would help those, you know, the lowest income and most at risk families. Yeah, it could be done. Yeah, every district can do it. I guarantee you. It's just a matter of saying like, no, I'm, I'm the moms are not going to solve this. Like we're, we're not going to sacrifice our earning potential and our time and our sanity. This is your problem to solve. Go solve it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I well, mean, that's, <laughs> that is my perspective. Just think like a man. Yes. Like, would a man, what would a man do? <laughs> what would a man do? A man would be banging down the door of the local officials. demanding that they solve this problem yeah 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 and that's um it's like the equivalent of us just being like you know what um we're not gonna do the dishes (laughs) this week and y'all will learn what what happens when the dishes (laughs) stop getting done it's like that on this on a very macro on a very macro level but i like that and i think you're right that that has to be the attitude and even if we are still like you said cobbling together our own individual solutions while we have to and they seem to be working for a while, like that doesn't, um, that doesn't like let the governments off the hook. They still need to be yep. like, yeah, they still can't assume that we're all just going to be able to do that indefinitely. And that, you know, gets them out of jail free or whatever. So yeah. oh. they're for sure on the hook. Yeah. Go check your most recent ta- tax filing to see exactly how much on the hook they are. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, Anne. This is a great conversation. I feel like we could talk for another hour. Um, and I'm just so curious to see, you know, in the next, this will go live um, at the end of the first week of August. And I'm just so curious to see how things are going to start playing out when the reality of what school actually is going to look like in the fall starts to become widespread knowledge and not just this guessing game that it is right now. And what that's going to mean for childcare. And I think that they're, you're right, like childcare, daycare could solve a lot of this issue if um, parents have the support they need. And, you know, that, I know you and I, um, in the webinar that we did, talked about employers possibly picking up some of that tab as well. And that's like a whole nother conversation for, sure. for another day. Yeah. But like, how is this all going to look? And I, and I really like your advice of just saying, look, we need to start talking about it a lot. Um, So I'm glad that we got that conversation started today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. The Mom Hour is supported by partners like Erica. Erica is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug when they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. Erica was built by a dad of three boys who saw that teens themselves were really becoming self-aware to the risks of social media and he wanted to help them self-regulate. Erica works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%.
The Mom Hour is brought to you by The Essential Calendar. Sarah, this is our favorite calendar for busy moms because its beautiful and simple design shows around three months at a time. Yeah, and with summer fast approaching, now is a great time to get The Essential Calendar and see what I've been raving about all these years. Get 10% off your order at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour. That's 10% off at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour.